Um, I am going to begin this lesson by answering Zintle's question from, when was it, last Tuesday. Zintle, I'm so sorry. Usually I always take time to, to check the questions just before I end, and you know that's the one time somebody left a question and I just clicked off of the broadcast. So I'm so sorry I didn't answer it then. But you asked about fundraising, especially because Jesus was casting out the money changers. It's a very appropriate question. Um, the, the people that were cast out of the temple, right? they were abusing the service of God for their own personal gain. So if somebody is going to take advantage of a congregation for their own personal gain, then any fundraising project, especially if it's done dishonestly, right? If you say it's for one thing and you're using it for something else, then we have issues. But if you are going to be open and honest about why you're raising the money and you're, you're offering something legitimate, right, to raise the funds, uh, then I, I think it. There's nothing that you'd be contradicting in Scripture by doing that. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, the Apostle Paul, he was a tent maker, and that is how he supported a lot of his gospel ministry work. Now, I don't know if you want to equate that with fundraising, right? But it is raising funds. It's not maybe the same way that we would use the term, but Paul was generating income, and it, you see, he wasn't going around to the churches selling tents to them. So there's where the difference comes in. But I think as long as you're upfront and honest about it and putting it to the right use, putting it towards the work of God, then by all means, I, I don't see a problem with that. So Zinle, let me know if there's anything else you wanted to know about that topic. But thank you for the question. Okay. So tonight we're in Matthew 22, if you'd like to open up to that. And as you find that, I'm going to pray because God knows I need it and ask God to help us with this. Father, please guide us into all truth tonight. Thank you for the privilege of, of having a Bible, having access to truth, having access to you. Lord, uh, there's so much that can be said and time constricts us, Lord. We, we, we need you to guide us in exactly what needs to be covered, what needs to be talked about. I pray that you might uh, allow us to engage not only with each other, but with you tonight. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew 22, and here's your outline for tonight. Uh, I'm breaking this down into two simple, well, two categories. I don't, know, I don't know how simple you'd call them, but verses 1 to 14 called to a wedding. Uh, it's a parable that Jesus gave. And then part two, as you can see, there's subpoints to it, but curious questions. Now, I've purposely chosen the title Curious Questions because it looks as if the first two questions were given in an attempt to trip Jesus up, to entangle him. But the, the third one, I'm not so sure it was given in, in an evil manner, with ill intent. It might have been. Talk more about it when we get to it. And then we have Jesus asking a question to the audience, to the people there. So, Obviously, he's not. he has no ill intentions, but he is trying to get a, a very important point across, very curious point in, in that day and time especially. So we'll talk more about that. You can see uh, the verses here. I'll, I'll just give you the subpoints for those of you that don't have access to the video. You need to hear this. Uh, verses 15 to 22, those are the taxes. They're going to talk about paying tax. Verses 23 to 33, questions about the resurrection and 
uh, the Sadducees mixed marriage into that. And then verses 34 to 40, going to be talking about the great commandment. We would say the greatest commandment of the law. Which one is it? And then to end the chapter, verses 41 to 46, Jesus is going to talk about the son of David and point something out from the book of Psalms that evidently the Jews were not grasping. They had missed this point. All right, so there's your outline. Let me take that down. If you need that back up, you let me know. I'm happy to put it back up. I'll take it down for now. All right, chapter 22 and verse 1, here comes the parable. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Now immediately for you and I, this brings to mind Revelation chapter 19, right? Because we think about the marriage of the lamb. We have the benefit of that advanced revelation, but but even though we, we can use that knowledge to understand this parable better, don't forget that we need to hear this as if we're standing there in the first century amongst these Jews that don't have access to that advanced revelation. It'll help us understand a little bit better the point, I believe, that Jesus was trying to drive home. Verse 3, And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Now let me... Um, suggest that when you get some time, read over in Luke chapter 14. There's a parable there. It's very similar that uh, a king or, or a man calls people to a great supper and they would not come. And Jesus is getting across the same point. The, the one who's doing the inviting gets angry that the people who are called would not come. They make excuses and then they the servants are sent out to get others in their place. It's going to fit in nicely with this parable here. Uh, in verse number four, again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Remember that a Jewish wedding comes in two parts, as most weddings do, right? You have the ceremony, you have a reception. Even amongst the Jews, you had the ceremony. Uh, very official, very formal, and then you have the reception or the marriage feast. We're obviously dealing with the feast. In verse 4, you can see all the food is mentioned, this great dinner or supper. Um, for those of you that are wondering, <laughs> is there, in the millennium, are we going to be able to eat biltong? Because I know some South Africans, no doubt, are wondering, are they going to get to enjoy biltong? There's a verse, right? Oxen and fatlings are killed. The supper is ready. So it looks as if all you meat eaters will have a one. Well, all of us meat eaters, because I'm one of them, we're going to have a fine time in the millennium with, with this aspect as well. Come unto the marriage, unto the feast. And they made light of it and went their ways. Verse 5, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Now, you see how this would tie into the parable of Matthew 13 about the thorns springing up, right? People get distracted by the things of this world, the cares of this life, and so forth. So, a farm and merchandise in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with those things. But whenever they take precedent, whenever they, um, they become your, the object of your love and cause you to take lightly an invitation from the king to be a part of this very special event, then obviously that's that's an issue. Verse six, and the remnant took his servants. So several of the people went off to their various ways. It went to the farm, went to the merchandise, 
one place or the other. The, the small group that stays behind, this remnant, they took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. So they mock them openly, beat them openly, you know, shame them, spit upon them, that type of thing, and then kills them. Now, because we just had this a very similar parable at the end of chapter 21, right? We can use the knowledge that we got from that parable to help us with this one. God sends prophets. He sends preachers to the nation of Israel. They don't take the message seriously. They kill the servants. I think we have a very similar thing happening here. However, I think we're going to have to move this into a slightly more New Testament context, and I'll show you why just now. Verse 7, But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Now, verse 7, very interesting. I think we can put that, the fulfillment of that, at 70 A.D. Because we're talking about the destruction of a city, right? This, this really narrows the focus down. I believe we're dealing with Jerusalem, which was ruined and destroyed and burned, literally burned down in 70 AD by the Roman army. Now, let's be careful. Verse 7, it says, he sent forth his armies. God, in the Old Testament, you'll find that several times uh, you find Gentile kings that are referred to as God's servant. And it's not because they were in submission to God or loved God, had a personal relationship with him. It's because they were fulfilling God's purpose in punishing Israel. The Assyrians, right? The, the king of Assyria was referred to, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 10, if my memory holds there. Uh, the Assyrian king is referred to as, as a servant of God, a, a tool in God's hand. And then you have Cyrus, king of Persia. He's referred to as God's anointed. God used him in a special way. In Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 25. Again, if memory serves, 25.9 rings a bell. Uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is called God's servant. And it is God himself saying it, that Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, is going to do this and this. So to say that the, the Roman army, right, that the king, God, sends forth his armies, the Romans, those soldiers. It's not a stretch to say that God, um, can we say, organized that, that destruction. So you see why I say this, this moves into a slightly New Testament context, because in the book of Acts, we see that it's not so much the prophets like we had in the Old Testament, but there are prophets in the New Testament sense. In the book of Ephesians, we read about the, this it's um, unique how Paul words it, apostles and prophets. He puts those two together because they were, an apostle was a prophet to a certain extent, right? Both offices could be fulfilled in one person. Now, sometimes they were two separate offices as well, but the apostles and prophets in the New Testament, they're going out preaching the word and the nation of Israel is receiving, right, the gospel, but many of them, now some convert, but many of them reject it. And as a result, then we know how history's played out, 70 AD burned to the ground. So verse 8, then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready. Now, what we, this is why I reminded you at the beginning, we, got, we have to be careful not to, not to read into this 
all the all of the New Testament revelation that we already have. Jesus does not mention here what we know as the church age, right? He doesn't bring it up. He talks about how this city is going to be destroyed. And then he skips, as far as I can tell, directly into a tribu- what we know as the tribulation. He goes right to that context. The wedding is ready. Well, that's now we're getting into Revelation 19. See, we're, we're getting into when that is going to be fulfilled. We know that the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, all of that was kept secret until the Jews had rejected, Christ had risen, gone back to heaven, and then through the Apostle Paul, all of these mysteries are revealed. So it wouldn't have made sense for Jesus to start expounding and talking about the body of Christ and how the Gentiles that are called and saved, how they're going to form you know, and be part of the body or the bride of Christ. So we wouldn't expect to find that information here. We know that that's part of the story, right, as far as God's timeline. But when we're trying to understand the point he's getting across, let's be careful not to look for information about the body of Christ in this. It hadn't been revealed yet. Verse 8, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye th- Not worthy, that is, they, they were rebellious, they made light of it, so not, not worthy to be allowed into this. Not worthy even of a second chance in this case. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So go out a little further. I went to my people, to one designated group. They rejected it, so go out a little further. I, I still believe that we're looking here at preachers in that tribulation setting, that end time setting, going to the, to the ends of the earth, looking for people to come to the, to the wedding feast. Uh, pre- preaching the gospel of the kingdom, right, is what they'd be preaching. Verse 10, so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. Now, don't, don't take that to mean that they went out preaching and these servants said, listen, if you're bad, doesn't matter, come on anyway. The, they went out to, and invited everyone, not just people that society recognized as good, but even the low lives of society, they reached out to everybody. I'm sorry, my, my computer just changed again. I don't know what's happening. Anyway, you guys let me know if we're still up and running. I'm going to keep going. So where was I? Yeah, they're inviting everybody, right? Low lives, scum of the earth, doesn't matter. They're giving everybody the gospel and they're inviting them, please come. Now, if you think of this, in that end time scenario, right? the church has been raptured up. We are up in heaven having the wedding ceremony. The marriage of the lamb has come. We're dressed in white robes. And then after the ceremony for our honeymoon, we get on white horses and ride back down to the earth. After the battle of Armageddon, then there's going to be this marriage feast. And these, the people that are on the earth going through this tribulation time, they are the ones receiving this invitation. So in the tribulation time, God is going to reach out to the nation of Israel. They are going to be part of his target audience. But according to this, it looks as if even in that time, there's going to be some that accept, but many won't. 
and then the, the, the message goes out to all nations. Are we? It's all good. Good. All right. So it says at the end of verse 10, the wedding was furnished with guests. Now this is, I believe, crucial to the passage. If you want to learn some very practical lessons about or, or from this uh, parable, you can make some application to present day, uh, to our present day doctrine, right? You can say that God is inviting people to come be a part of this um, plan that he has and come to the wedding. And if you don't accept, then there's destruction. There's some very general truths in there for us, but technically we are the bride. Any, any person that is saved, we are invited right now in the church age. When we give somebody the gospel, we're inviting you to be part of the bride. These people are the guests at the wedding. They are not the bride. And that's why I say I, we have to see this outside of a church age context, because right now we are inviting people to be partakers of something a little bit different. So they, these people are going to be the guests at the wedding. Verse 11, and when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now, what has taken place? If we put this again into the future, the battle of Armageddon has happened. Obviously, millions are going to die at this time, not just from that specific battle, but all of the natural disasters taking place all over the world whirlwinds, earthquakes, all of that stuff, you know, volcanoes going off, all of that's going to be happening. But there will be people that survive that time and have accepted this invitation. The, the, they've accepted the preaching and they are at the wedding feast. They're enjoying the presence of the lamb. And then the king comes in and he sees that there's somebody that has survived all the disaster, right? and has shown up at the wedding feast looking for a free meal, but he doesn't have on a wedding garment. So verse 12, he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. So this is a guy who bunkered down for all the trouble, made it through the tribulation time, and now thinks he can just come into the kingdom. But you see, it's not just a matter of physically surviving all the disasters. There's a spiritual aspect as well. You have to live up or let's say meet God's requirements. I'm going to show you what they are, what this garment has to do, do with in just a moment. This man had nothing to say. He was speechless. Now, it's also helpful to know in a Jewish context, it was very common. Matter of fact, almost always when somebody, when a, a Jewish man organized a wedding, as an invitation, he would offer the guest a garment. So we send out, you know, envelopes with a little card or something like that. Nowadays, we just do it electronically most of the time. But they would actually give the people a garment. And those, in order to get into the feast, you'd have to wear that garment. And that would show that you were properly invited and you had accepted the invitation. So now this man doesn't have a wedding garment. That means, hey man, you didn't, either you were invited and rejected the garment, or you were never invited to begin with. So this man has nothing to say. He has no right to be there. Verse 13, then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, 
immediately we see that this, and even the people listening to this, they would realize that we're, we're facing now some sort of eternal destruction. We're facing eternal damnation uh, if we reject the invitation that we've been given. So the people right there in the crowd, I think the immediate and most practical way to, to understand this is, is God is sending us an opportunity. He's giving us an opportunity. We have to take advantage of it. If we don't, if we try to get into this wedding some other way, then it's not going to work out. We have to receive the message, the invitation that the king is offering us. We can't come up into the sheepfold some other way. We'll be counted as a thief and a robber and we'll be cast out. Um, take your Bibles. Let me show you a couple verses. Revelation chapter 3, if you'd turn over there with me. Revelation 3. I want to give you a couple verses about this garment. Revelation 3. Now, those of you that have already had Revelation class, we, we've discussed in detail that the churches that are being written to, uh, I believe, doctrinally speaking, we're talking about end-time believers, end-time churches. And uh, Jesus tells this church of the Laodiceans in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. Uh, so endure the persecutions, that's what that is. And he says next, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And that's part of the advice. Now that's good advice for us, right, as well, to, to have a, we're supposed to have a nice clean garment, Ephesians 5. And the same is true here. These people need to have the garment. They need to have accepted the invitation. They have entered into the covenant, right? The agreement with God based on his terms. But then they're also doing their part of it. They are keeping their garments white. Now, let me show you that. Look at Revelation 16. Revelation 16. In verse number 15. The Bible says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So this person is not just that he needs to keep his garments unspotted from the world, which, which like I said, that's good advice for us too. That's right. This person needs to hang on to the garments. He can lose it. He could lose his garments, which... For somebody in the tribulation, I think that rings true, right? That, that would match somebody putting faith in Christ and then later on through temptations, through getting distracted, whatever it is, de denying Christ and losing their garments. Uh, look at Revelation 7, another verse about the garments. Uh, this isn't about keeping them, but it does speak to the manner in which they're saved. Revelation 7 and verse 14. The question is, is asked in verse 13, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. He said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we can see what's involved here. It's You, you do have to except that the blood of the lamb is what washes you clean. But there's also an aspect of hang on to those garments and endure to the end. All right, so come back to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 
at the end of 13, verse 13, it talks about casting them out into outer darkness. Um, that speaks to the an eternal state of being away from the light. God is light, so they're never going to be around that. So outer darkness, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, this is also referred to as hell fire. It, it will match, when you look in Isaiah chapter 66, we know that in the millennium, there is going to be a lake of fire that runs right outside of the city of Jerusalem, most likely on the other side of the Dead Sea, actually, on the eastern side of it. And people that are found guilty of some horrible offense are going to be taken out and thrown into hell fire or that lake of fire right there on the spot. You read about it at the end of Isaiah 66, Revelation 19, at the end of that chapter, talks about a lake of fire that is found on the earth. And to be distinguished from the lake of fire, which is the final punishment for all lost people. But I believe when he says cast him into outer darkness, he's, he's talking about that you've entered into this eternal state without light, weeping in other places. It says wailing, gnashing of teeth, and obviously the, the suffering of the, the torments of that fiery punishment. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. I mentioned last time how in Matthew, uh, Jesus uses a, a few phrases interchangeably. This is one of them. Uh, sometimes when he says the first shall be last, the last first, you just have to look at the context to see in what way does he mean that. Same thing with this. In chapter 20, uh, at, in chapter 20, verse 16, we have that phrase, many be called, few chosen. Now, you have to leave it in his context to understand what it means there. But here, many are called. Reach out to the Jews that are right there near Jerusalem, and they don't accept, so go out into all the world find anybody. Many are called. Few are chosen. Only the ones that accept the invitation, hang on to the wedding garment, they're allowed to come into the marriage feast and dine with the, with, with the groom, Christ, and with the bride, the church. All right. So if there's any questions about that, I, I must admit, this parable, it can be, I think, um, I don't want to say a head scratcher. I think there's enough information both in the parable and from other contexts to help us understand it. But let me know if there's any other questions about that, because it is a challenging passage, I, I think. All right, verse 15. Now we're going to enter into the questions that they asked Jesus. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. So the Pharisees obviously were one of the groups that gave Jesus the most trouble. And they're looking for a way just to trip him up. Let's get him to either contradict himself or let's get him into some confrontation with one of these other groups. So it says in verse 16, they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians. Now, Pharisees and Herodians really don't have any business being together, except in this case, they have one mutual um, endeavor, and that is this Jesus guy is not good for us. He's not good for business. So in, they are able to find some common ground in their envy or hatred for him. Now, the Herodians in our biblical survey class, we talk a little bit about this group. Uh, it, it was more of a political group. There really wasn't anything religious about the Herodians. 
but obviously they're linked to King Herod. They were in support of that faction of the government. Uh, if you want to know more about it in, in our biblical survey book, you can look under the heading in the book about Herodians and read a little bit more about them. But the Pharisees are going to enlist their help because now they, they think that they're going to find a problem with Jesus as it pertains to paying taxes. So obviously you get this politically minded group to help you out with that. Saying, Master, we know that thou art true and, uh, and teach us the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Now, be careful not to atomize this verse and, and just take one little phrase and run, run away with it. Neither carest thou for any man. Jesus cares, right? Does Jesus care? Amen. Yes, he cares. But within the way that they're saying it here, this is still a true statement, but you have to take it within its context. Neither carest thou for any man. He, it's not as if Jesus ever gets starstruck. The one who made the stars, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, is never starstruck. So he's not going to be taken with the person of a man and go, oh, you're the king? Oh, that's so great. He's not impressed by the name badge that somebody would wear. Now, this is much the same as the attitude that the Apostle Paul had to this subject. So I'd like for you to just turn with me quickly. Galatians chapter 2. And that's the attendance code for tonight. Let's see if I can put that somewhere on the screen where you can see it. Eish. These programs. I hope you can see that. There. I think my shirt is covering it up somewhere. There you can see it now. Uh, Galatians 2 and verse 6. It says here, Paul's talking about his the time that he went to Jerusalem for that big council meeting. But of these who seem to be somewhat, now watch the parentheses, Whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. So Paul says, yes, there were big shots there and they had all the titles, but I'm not impressed by titles. And that's much the same as Jesus's attitude towards it. So come back to Matthew 22 in verse 16. So they they are paying Jesus a hollow compliment. They're just blowing smoke at him. Even though what they're saying is true, and they might have recognized that this part of Jesus' personality was true, they're trying to make him feel comfortable so that they can stick the dagger in without him paying attention, which obviously is a poor idea. Jesus knows their heart. But when they come to him and say, we know that thou art true, we, we know that you're very honest. They are not making the claim that we know that, every, that you're right about everything. They obviously didn't agree with everything he was saying. But they do know that Jesus was one of these very forthright, honest, authoritative speaking people. And teaches the way of God in truth. So we know that when it comes to the things of God, you're interested in truth. And you don't care who's asking, you're just going to say what needs to be said. So they're trying to build him up to say, come on, say something controversial. Verse 17, tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus says, don't pay taxes, whew, right away they run off to Caesar and say, this guy is an insurrectionist. And if he says, okay, pay the tax, 
Well, that doesn't really go well with the accusations, the case that they were trying to build against him. So then, then they're going to maybe accuse him of supporting the Roman government. But come, come with me to Luke chapter 23. Let me show you that the, the people that were coming to him, they had presupposed what Jesus's intentions were. They, they weren't really going to listen to the answer he gave. They pretty much had their mind made up about what they thought Jesus's intentions were. And you'll notice that when people don't understand properly the teachings of Christ, it's because they approach it with presuppositions. They approach it with preconceived notions of how the thing actually is. And then when they hear the truth, it doesn't sit right. It doesn't work with how they thought it would go. So sometimes the key to learning is to unlearn. You have to, you have to forget the way you thought it was and let God give you the proper instruction. But look at how this these people had preconceived this. In Luke 23, verse 1, now this is obviously taking place after Christ had been arrested. This is the accusation. Verse 1 and 2 here. It says, The whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation. Isn't that strange? They just said a minute ago, You teach the way of God and truth. But now they say he's perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Well, see, now they had taken some of his comments from some of his sermons and were twisting stuff. And this business about he forbids people to give tribute to Caesar, that's not true. On multiple occasions, Jesus said it was okay to do that. We're going to see one, one of them here. Matthew 22, let's get verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? See, they, they did not say these things in verse 16 or ask this question with the right intentions. They were trying to make out as if they were being respectful, but he knew this is all hollow. It's just a show. Why, why tempt you me? Why, why are you guys trying to catch me, trying to entangle me? Verse 19, show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. He saith unto them, whose is this image and superscription? Notice how Jesus answers questions with a question. He often does this. And that's, I think, worth noting because whenever you answer a question with a question, you are engaging the person who, who originally asked that question. You're making them think about it. Verse 21, they say unto him, Caesar's. So that's the image. Then saith he unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are, that are God's. Well, this, this is a brilliant answer. No one could improve upon this. Jesus has no problem with paying taxes. And as a matter of fact, it, it, and we've learned this already in, in the book of Romans, God is the one who ordained the power structure of government. Right? He's all for that. And we are supposed to give tribute to whom tribute is due and custom to whom custom. Th those things are right. God's all for that. So the things that belong to Caesar, give it to Caesar. Now the things that are God's, how do you determine what belongs to God? Well, look for his image. If it bears God's image, give it to God. 
Now you look at the coin, there's Caesar's picture. If you look at a human being, here's the image of God. As broken as it is, right? Sin has broken the image, but we are still made in the image of God, and therefore it would only be right that we give ourselves willingly back to God. Verse 22, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. They had no answer. They had no answer. They thought, well, we, we, we can't find any fault with what he says, which is an interesting conclusion because you're going to find Pilate saying the same thing, right? Three times Pilate will say, I find no fault in this man. If somebody truly, genuinely listens to what Jesus has to say, and investigates the answer, that's the conclusion that you're going to come to is, I can't find any problems with what he's teaching, with what he's saying. Every claim that he makes, he backs it up. Every command that he gives, it makes sense in the real world to do it that way. All right, that's enough preaching. Back to verse 23. uh, It says, the same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him. Now again, presuppositions. They're coming to him, and so they they have already made up their mind. There's no resurrection. Furthermore, Sadducees believe that marriage, right? They they didn't have the right concept of marriage. They thought, if hypothetically, if there is a resurrection, then we would have to remain married after the resurrection. So they had some misconceptions about what, uh, what the truth was concerning resurrection and marriage, and it was their misconceptions that was causing the confusion. It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the, 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 any verse of the Bible or any truth in that, for that matter. Verse 24, saying, Master Moses said, if a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, you can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5. That, that verse does command that. In verse 25 here, it says, Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, no children, left his wife unto his brother, likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh. Wow. One woman going through seven brothers? You'd have to investigate the woman at some point, right? I mean, this would get a little a little curious as to how this is happening. You'd have to think of her as a bit of a black widow, wouldn't you? Verse 27, the last and last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, and you can see the Sadducees getting a little puffed up here. They, they think this, this is, we're going to nail them with this one. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Well, they have a point. If there is no resurrection, if there is a resurrection, and and if the marriage covenant that you made in this life carries over into the next one, ah, yeah, then they have an, they have a real conundrum that they've presented. Now, what do you do with that? Whose wife shall she be? So it was that misconception that the marriage covenant is going to last beyond the resurrection. That's what's causing their confusion. Verse twenty nine. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Now, there is power from God in the scriptures. However, in this verse, they are two different things. 
ye do err, not knowing the scriptures. You don't understand what the Bible has said about it. Maybe you haven't investigated everything the Bible has to say about this topic, nor do you understand, you don't know the power of God. And this specifically talking about raising the dead. In verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Angels are created beings. They do not propagate through reproduction like we know it now. They, they've never been commanded to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the heavens. So the angels of God, they don't, they are simply created by God, and there they are. They, they are immortal. And when we come up in the resurrection, we have a similar condition. It's not, it's not that we have the same appearance as angels or have the same function, but as it pertains to the marriage covenant and propagating the species and all that, we have, there's no need for reproduction. We have this newly, can I say created, this, this new body that was created by God and it is immortal and then that's it. We don't, there is not going to be an ongoing reproduction of the people that come up in the resurrection. So Jesus has explained that marriage, the marriage covenant has boundaries. It only applies, it's only applicable in this life. That is why when we say the vows one to another during a, a wedding ceremony, we say till death do us part, right? So at, at the moment of death, that when life is ended, then the marriage covenant is is over. Now they should have known that. They should have known that simply from the law saying when somebody dies then she is free to marry another person. Right? They should have been able to pick up on that but in any event they, Jesus has now explained to them what's going to happen on the other side of the resurrection as far as marriage is concerned and that by itself shuts down their question. They no longer have a legitimate point that they're making. Jesus has explained to them how it's going to work on that side of the resurrection. In verse 32, um, I'm sorry, verse 31, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Uh, a couple things you want to notice in this. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. Exodus 3 verse 6. Notice the present tense. Present tense. Very interesting. I am the God of Abraham. So it, God of Jacob, God, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. He didn't say God in Exodus 3 did not say I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. And Jesus points out a fact that would have been generally accepted by everyone, Pharisee, Sadducee, anybody would have accepted this, that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That is, a person who's dead is not able to submit themselves to God. There's no relationship. Now, dead as in completely, not just physically dead, mind you, but they, they died in their sins. They were spiritually dead and they, are, they have lost their soul, right? So there's no connection between that person and God anymore. God is not the God of the dead. God, if he says, I am this person's God, then that person is alive. There is some sort of relationship going on. 
So for God to say this in the present tense, I am the God of Abraham. Abraham still exists. Isaac, Jacob still exist at the time of Exodus 3, even though they had died hundreds of years before this, but before that statement was made. Now, the Sadducees, and you can find this in the writings of Josephus in his uh, work called Antiquities. He writes about the belief system of the Sadducees. And he says, uh, their doc the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies. So the Sadducee thought that the body and the soul somehow made up a, a singular entity. And when the body died, that was it for the soul as well. So the soul would, is not immortal. It's not, it's not a separate thing that would go off into one place or the other. It, was, it just ceased to exist. Well, by, then when Jesus points out, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they still exist. Well, again, that shuts down the fair, that answers part of their problem. They thought that the soul ceased to exist, and that wasn't true. The soul still exists, and God, he is still their God. That, that person is still there. They are there somewhere. That soul is a real thing somewhere, which means if he is still their God, then everything God promised these men those promises are still binding. God must honor his word to these people who truly exist. What did God promise these men? Take your Bible. Let's look at it quickly. Get Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. All right, Genesis chapter 13. a great chance for me to slip in. Amen. Ah, I love that. That's awesome. Amen. One more for good measure. It's just fun, right? Genesis chapter 13 and verse 15. Let's look at what God promised Abraham. You can see that the Lord is speaking to Abram, verse 14, verse 15, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed after thee. Now, Abram, or Abraham, he was never given control of the land of Canaan during his physical life that we read about in the book of Genesis. This promise has not yet been fulfilled. Look at Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26 and verse 3. Genesis 26, 3. It says here, this is the Lord speaking to Isaac. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee, and unto thy seed, I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Same promise made to Abraham, now given to Isaac. I am going to give you this land. Now, again, in Isaac's lifetime, he didn't realize that promise. It wasn't completely actuated. He, he was in the land, but he didn't possess it. Uh, come to Genesis chapter 28. All right, so we'll see it again with Jacob. Genesis 28, verse 13. 28, 13. 
And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it into thy seed. Jacob, at no time did he possess all the land. His children, his seed, did not possess the entire land of Canaan at any time during his physical life. Right? He ended up dying in Egypt. So these promises have not yet been realized to these men. But if God is still their God, by the time of Exodus 3, then God's promises are still binding, which means the only way for those promises to be fulfilled, God has to raise them from the dead. And if God is going to bring them back into the physical land and give them the land of Canaan, then they need a physical body with which to live on that land. So that is how you can take Exodus 3 verse 6 and understand a physical resurrection from it. Let me just finish this thought. Come to Hebrews 13, or Hebrews 11, verse 13. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. I see that Mike Flick made a comment. I'm Mike Flick, by the way, but that's my family out in the other room listening to the live stream. I bet Amy wrote that amen. So this is for you, Amy. Amen. <laughs> I just love that. That's awesome. All right, uh, where are we? Hebrews 11 and verse 13. He's talking here about Abraham. And he says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Strangers and pilgrims. They didn't own the land. They did not receive the promises in their lifetime. But one day they will. And it requires a physical resurrection to be in that land. All right, come back to Matthew 22. I hope that makes clear what, why Jesus used this verse to prove the Sadducees wrong concerning a resurrection. All right, verse 33, Matthew 22, verse 33. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Think of this. Jesus overthrew the Sadducees and their, the core of their doctrinal beliefs. And the Sadducees had been around for a, a couple hundred years. He just overthrew their core beliefs with one word from one verse. I, the word am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. With one little bean verb, am, he overthrew the whole thing. That is. I'm still astonished, right? Every time I think about it, I just, it astonishes me more and more. Verse 34, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Now, I, I don't blame anyone when you read this to say, yeah, this, this was an ill-intentioned question. He's tempting him. Fair enough. But when you read the reaction of this lawyer in the other Gospels. It's not the same as the Herodians and as the Sadducees. So this man, he might have started off trying to antagonize the Lord a little bit. I think that would be a fair assumption with what we read here. But there's a much more honest approach, and this question is, is a much more open-ended question. He's trying, I think at worst, he's trying to get Jesus caught up in a, a, in a subjective argument about what commandment you think is more important. And then you just get into a long argument. 
but the the answer Jesus gives, I think it's in Mark's gospel. Maybe one of you can check it real quick. But in Mark 12, I think it is at the end of that chapter, this this man, this lawyer ends up agreeing with the answer of Jesus. So that's why I say it's it might have there might have been a little bit of of a antagonizing spirit to it, but it's certainly not the same as the other people asking in this chapter. Master, verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Now let's just break this down a little bit. We don't have time to get into this. This we could really, it would be great to unpack this for a while. With all thy heart, with all thy heart, your emotions, your passions, love God with all of that. With all your soul, that's your will. The will is part of the soul. So a willingness, even when I don't feel like it, I'm going to serve the Lord anyway. And with all thy mind, your intellect. Do you see those are three separate things, but you need to love God with all of that. In one of the other Gospels, again, I think it's Mark, it says with all your strength, that would bring your body into it. So you can see how body, soul, spirit, all of it is, is brought into focus here. Verse 38, this is the first and great commandment. Amen. The relationship with God needs to be right. Listen, God is not an idea. If he was an idea, you could love him with your mind and be done. But God is more than an idea. He is a person. And therefore, that personal relationship with the ultimate being, that's the the greatest commandment. That's the most important thing that you have to get right. How do I love God properly? Oh, I wanted to preach on that this morning. And God gave me a sermon about it, to be honest with you, but I didn't. I struggled last night. I asked the Lord if he would give me more time to work on that topic because I don't want to preach about loving God properly and perfectly is the right word there without having really dug deep into it. But it is a great commandment. This is the first and great commandment. Verse 39 Jesus tacks onto it. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So the reason it's like it is because there's love involved. The first one is vertical, love vertically, then love horizontally. Love vertically, love horizontally. Forms a cross, just in case you didn't pick up on that. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now notice there's actually a third group here. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Nothing wrong with loving yourself. There are boundaries to it. It can obviously go too far. And when you get this thing turned upside down, it turns into a mess. If you love yourself first, your neighbor, and then God last, that's a a problem. But if you keep this in the right order, it'll really straighten your life out. Now, again, we just don't have time to unpack it. It would get into preaching, I think, if we start talking about how to love God and how to love your neighbor properly. But I trust that you are aware of what that entails. It's a sacrificial, personal love, uh, both ways, vertical, horizontal. Verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we've talked about this before. I'll just mention it briefly again now. Um, In the law, you have 613 different judgments, precepts, statutes, laws, commandments, everything that Israel needed to form a legislative government, right? It was all there, 613. Now, if you want to categorize those, they would fall into 10 different, 
they would fall under 10 different headings. So all 613 will fit under the 10 commandments somewhere. And then if you wanted to narrow it down even further, the 10 commandments will fit under two. Love God, love your neighbor. So the first of the first four of the 10 commandments pertain to God and the last six pertain to your fellow man. So you have two, 10, 613. Jesus says on these two, everything in the law and the prophets will fit into that. Well, again, brilliant answer. Jesus in just a couple of sentences has explained what God expects of mankind. My goodness, how to say something that profound. It takes me an hour just to get across maybe one or two simple points. Jesus takes one or two sentences and is so cram-packed with brilliant information. Certainly worth your time to meditate on it. Think about it. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, he says, now while I got you guys here and we're all asking questions, I got one for you. Saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Well, amen. They, they have that right. When you go back in the book of Psalms, um, I believe it's Psalm 131. I'm going to check it just real quick because I'd like to give you the the cross-reference that is most commonly used for this. No, no, Psalm 132, forgive me. Psalm 132, verse 11. That's the verse that is most often used to show that he's the son of David. But there are some other verses that would show that. So they're right about that. The Messiah, right? The Messiah is going to be the son of David. Verse 43 he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying... Now, before we get into the verse that he's going to quote, let me just point this out. How then doth David in spirit? I think there's a couple ways you can understand this, and I think both ways are right. In spirit, that is, he was David was led by the Holy Ghost to write what he wrote in Psalm 110, verse 1, and all of that psalm. Uh, I, I think that that's true, right? I have no problems with that interpretation of this, and it could very well be that Jesus meant that. I think there's another way to understand it. How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? What would be the opposite way to say that? We would, If David were to say this according to the flesh, David had no temporal secular authority above him. So when David is calling him Lord, Obviously, David is referring to something in the spiritual realm, and it's a spiritual nature type thing. He's not referring to something physical, some uh, temporal authority over him in the government. So it, it could be understood either way. Most people go with the idea that David was led by the Spirit of God to say this, and I think that works. That, that makes perfect sense as well. Verse 44, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. So you guys agree that the Messiah is going to be the son of David. Yes, yes, we agree with that. Okay, then answer me this. David wrote, the Lord, that's Jehovah, notice the all caps there. The Lord said unto my Lord. So David recognizes that Jehovah says to 
the Messiah, my Lord, which we, all of the Jews, they recognize that the person being addressed here in Psalm 110 verse 1, Jehovah is speaking to the Messiah. They, they admit that. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. Well, the question then becomes, if David is the father of the Messiah, and the Messiah is merely a man, which is what the Jews believed, to this day, they still believe that. They, they say that any man could be the Messiah. Anybody that, that would rise up and conquer the enemy, they can fulfill the prophecies about the Messiah. But Jesus says there's a problem with that idea. If that's the case and he's just merely a man, why would David call him Lord? Now see, that's you have to think of this in the context of an honor-shame society. How shameful. Now, we, we, we live in more of a guilt-innocent society. But many cultures in the world, and even, even ours here, it, it does exist to a certain extent. Shame, right? Why would David call his own son, if he's just his nothing but a, a mere man, calling him Lord? That would be a horrible shame. To us, that would be the equivalent of being guilty of a crime. Why would he do this? And look what is said to Jehovah, says it to David's Lord, sit thou on my right hand. So now Jehovah is saying to the Messiah, you are on equal ground. You can sit at my right hand. You have the same level of authority as I do till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So you sit here with me. We're, we're, we're on level ground. Now this is very important because Jews to this day, they do not see the Messiah as a divine figure. They think of him just as a man. Muslims as well. They say that the Messiah, biblically speaking, is nothing but a man. And if that's how you approach it, then there are a lot of verses in the Old Testament that aren't going to make sense. Because it can be shown over and over again that the Messiah, although yes, there is part of him that is going to be human, there's also part of him that is divine. And this verse goes a long way to proving that. Verse 45, if David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Now, Jesus just leaves them to stew in that, to marinate in that for a while. Verse 46, and no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man. We would say nobody dared. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. They said, we've learned our lesson. You, you have not just an answer. You have the answer to these questions. And the question you're asking us, yeah, we've never thought of it that way. Now, just like with any question, you can put forth a very solid question and maybe the person's not able to answer it. Maybe they know the truth, but they have some pressure from somewhere else that they don't want to acknowledge the truth. Um, so please don't think that now that I have a strong argument, I'm going to convince everybody. I wish it was that simple, but obviously it's not. But Jesus, he's put forth such a solid argument. He's trying to show them there's more to the Messiah than you guys realize. You don't understand all there is to the Messiah. He's trying to get them to think because they missed so much of it. Let's make sure that we don't miss everything that Jesus is trying to teach us about who he is, his nature, and how he wants us to relate to him. All right, we've come to the close of the chapter. I hope this has helped tonight.
Um, Zinkley or anybody that's still tuned in, if you got any questions, I am going to pray. And then I'm going to check the box, the comment section, to see if any questions come in before I shut off the live stream tonight. But I am going to end in a word of prayer now. Father, thank you for your help this evening. Lord, we are impressed with you. We are astonished at, uh, Lord, not only the knowledge that you have, not only the ability to stand in the face of your enemies and speak truth and answer their questions, but, uh, Lord, when we read about the position you hold, being on level ground with God Almighty and yet humbling yourself to come down to this earth so that we might know you. Thank you, Lord. We want to take you up on that invitation, Lord. I, we, we don't want to be the ones that spitefully use and abuse your servants. We, we want to take seriously when you speak to us. Lord. We look forward to that wedding feast. God, please, please let us hear the trumpet soon. We, we want to hear the man cry out, uh, the, the bridegroom cometh. The bridegroom cometh, Lord. May it be even tonight. Please have your hand upon these, these folks that have tuned in, those that have watched it later. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to learn. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, I am checking the box. I know there's a bit of a lag. Ooh, I left the attendance code up the whole time. That's all right. Um, I know there's a bit of a lag, so I'm just giving in a couple more seconds. I think there's about a 25-second lag, but I am just stalling for a moment. I don't see any other questions. All right. Then I think I'm going to log off for now. Hey, if you enjoyed the lesson, if it helped, I'm going to ask that you hit the thumbs up. Give it a like. And if you haven't subscribed, go ahead and subscribe to the channel as well. I would appreciate that. We're trying to build a bit of a YouTube presence so that we can reach more people with the truth. That's our, that's our goal. Guys, thanks for tuning in. Lord willing, uh, we'll see you again soon.